You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part 2B of our Portrait of John Brown. If you haven't checked out part 1 and part 2A yet, I recommend that you do so before listening here. This is a streamlined episode. Uh, it's going to be shorter than normal, and we're going to hop right in without any introduction. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. October 16, 1859 was a cool, drizzly night. Just after the sun set behind the Blue Ridge Mountains, 18 men, 13 white and 5 black, all militant abolitionists, began their short walk to the small Virginia town of Harper's Ferry. Each man traveled with a partner, and each two-man team with its own mission, all part of a plan that John Brown had been concocting for more than a decade to finally be put into practice on that fateful night. Three men stayed behind at the Kennedy Farm, just across the Potomac River from Harper's Ferry in Maryland. The farm would continue to serve as headquarters and as a rendezvous point. It housed the mini arsenal, hundreds of small arms, and 1,000 pikes that Brown had secured to arm the liberated slaves that he was confident would rally to his cause in the near future. Just before embarking, they went over the plan one last time. John Cook, the undercover teacher, would cut the telegraph wires out of town, ensuring that Harper's Ferry residents could not quickly call for help upon realizing what was transpiring. Two pairs were assigned to capture and control the two bridges in and out of town, the first crossing the Potomac from Maryland and the second crossing the Shenandoah on the opposite side of town. Three other pairs were charged with capturing the Hall Rifle Works, the Federal Armory, and a small engine house next to the armory, respectively. Another team would raid the nearby farmhouse of Lewis Washington, grandnephew of the man who had decided to locate the armory in Harper's Ferry, George Washington himself. Once the Washington farm was under their control, they would free the slaves who lived there and take the whites prisoner. Then they would all rejoin Brown in Harper's Ferry proper. In a symbolic gesture conceived by Brown, Lewis Washington would be required to surrender two priceless heirlooms, a sword gifted to General Washington by Frederick the Great, and a pair of pistols from the Marquis de Lafayette to Osborne Anderson, one of the five black raiders. The raid officially began at the Potomac Bridge, where the bridge watchman, an elderly man by the name of William Williams, was taken prisoner. At first, Williams thought the men must surely be playing a prank, but their demeanor, not to mention the weapons that they were not shy about brandishing, soon convinced him that he was indeed a hostage. On the other side of town, the team composed of Oliver Brown and William Thompson captured the Shenandoah Bridge without any difficulty. Along the way, they took several hostages, random citizens that crossed their path. Around 10 p.m., a team led by John Brown himself captured the raid's principal target, the Federal Armory. The sole guard tasked with protecting the thousands of firearms kept there 
sensibly refused to unlock the door, but the lock could not withstand a crowbar, and the armory guard too found himself a hostage. Upon securing the armory and bringing the thousands of weapons there under his control, John Brown dramatically announced, quote, I came here from Kansas, and this is a slave state. I want to free all the Negroes in this state. If I am interfered with, I must only burn the town and have blood. End quote. So with the armory in hand, Brown assigned a six-man team to ride out of town, raiding farms and liberating any slaves they encountered. The first real hitch came just around midnight, when the watch shift on the Potomac Bridge changed and Patrick Higgins was scheduled to relieve William Williams. Where the elderly Williams offered no resistance, Higgins, upon comprehending the men's intent to take him captive, punched Owen Brown in the face and made a run for it. Brown's teammate shot Higgins as he ran away, but he was only grazed. Higgins headed straight for a nearby tavern to spread word that something nefarious was afoot. The bartender, though, didn't believe him, and so he visited the bridge to see for himself, and he was promptly taken prisoner. But Higgins was still loose. Just before 1.30 a.m., he flagged down a B&O train that was slowly approaching Harper's Ferry, headed for the Potomac Bridge. The conductor brought the train to a halt in time, and he sent two B&O employees to find out exactly what was occurring at the bridge. The two investigators approached the Potomac Bridge and announced that they were with B&O. Without warning, Owen Brown and his partner, Stuart Taylor, began shooting at them. The investigators attempted to flee back to the train, uh, suitably convinced of the veracity of Higgins' account. Now, one of the oft-noted ironies of the Harper's Ferry raid is that the first life lost was that of a free black man. Shepard Hayward, one of the pair of B&O employees inspecting the bridge, took a rifle shot as he fled. Now, other B&O employees were able to carry him the rest of the way to, to relative safety, and they quickly summoned a doctor. But the wound was just too serious, and Hayward died early the next morning. The treating doctor, frustrated in his attempt to save Hayward, took it upon himself to help in another way. He ran, determinedly and urgently, all through and around Harper's Ferry and the nearby areas, warning the Jefferson County, Virginia residents that they were under attack. And most significantly, he rounded up the local militia to oppose the armed raiders. The death of Shepard Hayward, uh, one of their own, put the B&O employees on a mission to get help into Harper's Ferry. The train conductor wired B&O's Baltimore headquarters around 7 a.m. with an SOS, declaring that Harper's Ferry was under assault by an armed band of 150 men. The response didn't come until uh, 9 o'clock and was uh, incredulous. The conductor's reply, though, was sufficiently urgent to persuade the folks at B&O, and the railroad's politically connected president communicated news of the raid directly to the governor of Virginia, Henry Wise, and to President Buchanan himself. Now, around the same time that Patrick Higgins was arriving for his shift, which is about midnight, the six-man team assigned by Brown to capture Lewis Washington uh, arrived at his farm, uh, about five miles outside of Harper's Ferry. As planned, they confiscated the Lafayette pistol and Frederick the Great's sword. Then they commandeered one of Washington's wagons, loaded the prisoners, including Lewis Washington uh, and the slaves, 
and headed back toward Harper's Ferry. Along the way, they stopped at another farm owned by John Allstead, where they took Allstead and his teenage son hostage before reuniting with John Brown at the Harper's Ferry Armory, uh, arriving for the rendezvous just before daybreak, uh, about the same time that the uh, B&O conductor was sending the alert to company headquarters in Baltimore. At the armory, Brown ordered pikes distributed to uh, several freed slaves that were now present and directed them to guard the white prisoners. Now, think about this for a minute. The black slaves had absolutely no reason to know that John Brown's raiders were going to show up that night. Then, in the middle of the night, a bunch of armed men, who they didn't know from Adam, take their masters prisoner, tell the slaves that they are now free, and transport them to Harper's Ferry, where they're handed medieval weapons and and told to guard the very people who, uh, only a couple hours ago, had held authority. Predictably, they were confused, uncomfortable, and uh, many of them downright scared. One liberated man, uh, when Brown handed him a pike, exclaimed, Good Lord, Massa, I don't know nothing about handling them things. That same man, when he was sent uh, for water a few hours later, took off and went home, no doubt believing that things uh, were not going to turn out well for Brown's group. And he wasn't the only one to escape from Brown's rescue attempt. Only a couple were actually enthusiastic about the prospect of joining Brown. And the uh, large-scale uprising that John Brown had been counting on simply did not materialize. Uh, According to Lewis Washington's uh, account afterwards, quote, Not a slave seemed to have a heart in this matter. The slaves themselves did nothing, end quote. And I don't really think that should be surprising, given the uh, complete lack of any foreknowledge of Brown's plan and the very real and severe punishments uh, likely for willing recruits uh, who did not successfully escape. Notably, in the raid's aftermath, several of the white hostages testified that uh, most of the slaves were unwilling participants. And that's important because the testimonies saved the slaves from uh, death sentences that they would almost certainly have received had they been considered Brown's accomplices. Now, Brown didn't help his cause with the surprised slaves by uh, theatrically introducing himself as Osawatomie Brown of Kansas. Now, he was hoping that they would know his name, and and most of them actually did, but he should have known that his reputation in Virginia was going to be the polar opposite of the status that he enjoyed among the abolitionists in New England. When the slaves learned the true identity of their would-be liberator, many started to panic. Washington recalled that upon hearing the name that they had no doubt heard cursed more than once, quote, they dropped the pikes like the devil's gifts, end quote. As the sun began to rise, and it became clear that a widespread insurrection was not going to happen, Brown probably should have called it a day and got out of town while he still could. Uh, Even with only a a few freed, he could have called the raid a success. His men could have left with as many weapons as they could could load on their wagons, and the ultimate goal, stoking fear in the South, would have been achieved. But he didn't do that. Several of the raiders urged him to to get out of town, but he stalled. 
deciding instead that he would wait as, as long as he could for the expected recruits to arrive or, in the alternative, give himself up to martyrdom. With the morning of October 7th having arrived, the citizens of Harper's Ferry and the surrounding areas uh, began to show up in town for work. And John Brown's team took a few more hostages until a total of 35 people were gathered in the armory. The town was still groggy. Uh, Most people uh, still didn't understand what was going on. But that changed when Dangerfield Newby, one of the former slaves on Brown's team, shot and killed Thomas Bowerly the owner of a local grocery store. Uh, It's not entirely clear why uh, Newby decided to kill Barley, but the the shooting led to a rapid increase in the tensions between the raiders and the townsfolk. Now, shortly after the murder, John Brown's window closed. Local militia groups began arriving, and bands of armed citizens started forming up, intent on putting an end to the raiders' occupation of the town. The militias easily overpowered the uh, raiders that were guarding the two crucial bridges um, that allowed ingress and egress from the town. And Dangerfield Newby, the man who had shot Thomas Bowerly, and who had been guarding the Potomac Bridge, uh, was shot and uh, killed as he tried to flee from the Maryland militia as it stormed across into Harper's Ferry from from the old Lion State. Uh, Newby's body was uh, mutilated by the enraged militia, and then thrown into the gutter, where it would soon be further violated by a group of pigs. Now that the local citizens had figured out what was up, uh, they weren't happy, and they were looking for revenge against the raiders. So after crossing the bridge, the Marylanders kept on coming, making straight for the armory. But John Brown organized his men to oppose the militia's assault, And when they opened fire, as the militiamen neared within about 200 feet of the armory, the charge stalled. And they fell back to the bridge with several militiamen killed in the gunfire. Another militia group assaulted Hall's Rifle Works, which was occupied by a smaller four-man team. The assault was successful, and the raiders fled toward the Shenandoah, hoping to escape across the river. Two of the raiders were shot and killed as they ran, and another was captured and taken prisoner. And a fourth was stranded on a rock in the middle of the river as he tried to cross. The current in the Shenandoah is significantly stronger than what you might think just by looking at the surface. Uh, Later on, one of the militiamen waded out and um, shot the raider in the face. Now, throughout the rest of the day, his corpse served as, as, as target for the men uh, on the bridge, who wanted to sight in their rifles or just get some extra target practice. So back at the armory, John Brown and the other raiders were now clearly trapped. And so Brown decided that he would try to strike a deal. He offered to release his hostages in exchange for safe passage across the bridge and out of town. Uh, the offer, though, was uh, flatly rejected, and the messenger Brown sent was taken prisoner. Next, he moved his men and the hostages from the armory to a nearby engine house, which was smaller and more easily defended. Now, despite the militia's clear lack of interest in cutting a deal, Brown decided that he would send another messenger. And this time, it was his son, Watson Brown, once again trying to jumpstart negotiations. Now, unfortunately, Watson uh, never got the opportunity to demonstrate his... uh, negotiating prowess. 
As he approached the militia, he was shot in the gut. Poor Watson Brown died the next morning after a, a long, painful final day. And afterwards, his body was embalmed and put to use as an anatomical specimen at a nearby medical college. Uh, during the war, though, Union troops confiscated the body and returned it to the Brown Farm in North Elba, New York, for a proper burial. With the militia unwilling to risk another direct assault on Brown's covered position and, and the raiders trapped in the engine house, the situation had devolved into a stalemate. Uh, by the early afternoon, hundreds more militia from several local companies had arrived and completely surrounded the raiding party. Militia companies were on the scene from Shepherdstown, uh, Winchester, and Martinsburg, Virginia. And uh, shortly thereafter, a, a larger company arrived from Frederick, Maryland, and then an even larger company from Baltimore. The various militia captains elected to form a perimeter and hold the raiders in place, completely surrounded, and wait for the professionals to arrive. The resulting delay allowed a few raiders to escape. Uh, none from the main group uh, at the engine house, but, uh, but a pair that had been hiding out in another building were able to uh, successfully make it across the Potomac after dark. And Jim Cook, the undercover schoolteacher who had reconnoitered the town for the past year and who had been uh, camped out in a Harpers Ferry schoolhouse, well, he concluded that Brown's situation was hopeless and that attempting uh, to help would, would just be suicide. And so Cook was able to quietly escape into the mountains and make his way north. Throughout the afternoon, the militiamen and raiders took turns sniping at one another, with the raiders killing a couple Harpers Ferry residents, including popular mayor Fontaine Beckham, uh, who was not armed and who had been uh, attempting to calm everyone down to prevent what he anticipated would end up being a violent lynching once the raiders were captured. After Beckham was murdered, the proverbial cooler head could no longer prevail, and the townsfolk were out for blood. Soon after, Raider William Thompson was captured at the Wager House Hotel. When the raids started falling apart earlier in the day, Thompson had locked himself in the upper floor of the hotel. The armed townsfolk who had cornered him there to that point held off on apprehending him, uh, due in part to the pleas of, a, uh, of the innkeeper's daughter, who ha had convinced them that they should merely hold him in place uh, until he could be arrested by the proper authorities and subjected to the uh, criminal justice process. Beckham's murder, though, changed things, and the young woman's appeals now fell on deaf ears. The Harpers Ferry residents broke down the door and quickly overpowered Thompson shooting him dozens of times and then throwing his body in the river. In the meantime, the steady exchange of gunfire at the engine house continued to take victims. Uh, another of John Brown's son, uh, Oliver Brown, took a rifle shot to the gut, and he also died a slow, painful death uh, over the next 12 hours. Uh, a few hours in, suffering and certain that he had uh, no chance of survival, Oliver asked to be put out of his misery. His father, though, uh, ever the Stoic, instructed, quote, If you must die, die like a man, end quote. If nothing else, John Brown was hard as nails. Brown made a few more efforts to negotiate an escape uh, as night fell, but the militia was not having it. Only unconditional surrender would suffice. Then at around 11 p.m., the professionals who the militia captains had been waiting for 
arrived in the form of 90 United States Marines under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee, universally considered one of the most competent officers in the United States Army. Lee immediately assumed authority over the situation and made the decision to delay any assault until morning, uh, so as to avoid unnecessarily endangering hostages. Lee offered the honor of storming the engine house to the militia that was on the scene as a reward for cornering the raiders and for holding them in place all day. And in Lee's eyes, it was a genuine honor. Uh, We might use air quotes around honor now, but that was uh, not the case when Lee made the offer. Even so, the militia demurred. They had seen enough of the bloody business to understand that armed combat was maybe not as enjoyable as advertised. Uh, Explaining the declination, the militia captain told Lee, you are paid for doing this kind of work. And it's worth noting that there was a world of difference between volunteer militiamen in 1859 versus 1862 or 1863. Uh, These men at Harper's Ferry didn't have much, if any, combat experience. Uh, A few might have fought in Mexico, but they uh, they had all seen uh, enough excitement for the day. And besides, Lee's Marines were chomping at the bit. So R.E. Lee's approach was going to be fairly straightforward. The the situation didn't call for much in the way of strategy. Uh, To start, he would send his second-in-command, a young Virginian uh, Lee had instructed at West Point by the name of uh, Jeb Stewart, uh, to attempt to negotiate Brown's surrender. And and Stewart was a good pick for the job. He he was friendly, uh, outgoing, and uh, a quick-witted young man. And he would, of course, prove himself to be a talented cavalry officer in, in the near future. So Stuart would try to charm Brown into a bloodless surrender. Uh, Basically, all he could offer was that Brown and his raiders uh, would be taken into custody by the Marines and given a trial, as opposed to being lynched by the citizens of the town or uh, shot dead when the Marines inevitably breached the engine house. If Brown refused, as Lee expected, Stuart would wave his hat, signaling to the Marines to begin the assault. Uh, John Brown spent the pre-dawn hours preparing his men, at least preparing them as much as possible, for what he knew was on the way. All the men arranged covered positions and readied their rifles, along with a few spares, uh, to fire at the Marines as they approached. Now, during the preparations, one of the hostages uh, matter-of-factly informed the raiders that they were currently in the process of committing treason. Uh, Maybe there was some wiggle room with how you viewed the the capture of the arsenal, but if the Raiders uh, engaged U.S. soldiers, they were unquestionably taking up arms against the federal government. Now, two of the Raiders asked Brown for confirmation. Were they, in fact, engaging in treason? And Brown thought about it for a minute, and he replied that, uh, yes, they probably were, at which point the two men decided that they were done. Uh, They'd no longer participate. And let's be realistic, though, Um, in for a penny, in for a pound. I mean, uh, by this point, there's no way these guys uh, are not going to hang unless they pull off a a miraculous escape. They were in too deep to expect any leniency, regardless of whether they actually offered any resistance. So before we get into the climax of the raid, I think it's worth pointing out that as dawn broke, John Brown and his men hadn't slept in two days. The raid began on the evening of Friday, October 16th. The raiders were holed up in the armory and engine house uh, most of the day Saturday the 17th, and Lee and the Marines arrived late that night. 
And now it's the morning of Sunday the 18th. So they're about 48 hours in with no sleep and not very much to eat either. You know that surreal feeling you get when you haven't slept in a long, long time. And it starts to feel like um, you're just sort of detached, like a spectator of what whatever it is that you're doing. Now, imagine having that feeling, except that you're about to be attacked by a company of U.S. Marines. Just as the sun started to come up, Jeb Stewart strode up to the door of the engine house. Hundreds or more townsfolk, militiamen, and raiders watching his every step. John Brown himself cracked the door to meet Stewart, and Jeb was surprised to find that he recognized the fierce-looking old man looking back at him. The soldiers, of course, had been informed that the raid was being led by a man named Isaac Smith, the alias that Brown was using in Maryland. And Stewart asked if he was the old Osawatomie Brown who had given us so much trouble in Kansas. And Brown acknowledged that, well, he was one and the same. Small world, right? Now, you might have thought that their you know, previous interactions would, would have led to some rapport, but alas, the negotiations did not last long. After a brief exchange, Brown made clear that the only deal he was willing to entertain uh, was what he had been insisting on all along. He would release the hostages if the Marines and militia would allow the raiders to leave town unmolested. Uh, if there had maybe been any chance of, uh, of striking a deal the day before with the militia captains, uh, which doesn't uh, seem to have been likely, there was absolutely no way that Robert E. Lee and the Marine detachment that he was leading uh, were going to let Brown and his men leave town uh, of their own volition. So Stewart waved his hat. I, I wish I had a better description of how exactly Stewart did that, but uh, I couldn't find anything. But um, based on what I've read about Jeb Stewart's personality, I imagine it was something dramatic. Uh, sadly, I don't believe that he was yet sporting the ostrich feather. But regardless, I'm about to take some creative license. So Stewart offered the formal bow, fitting of a Virginia gentleman. Then he slowly turned back around toward Lee and the Marines, deliberately removed his hat and held it high in the air, holding it in place for a few seemingly interminable seconds and then gave it an almost perceptible quiver, like a monarch patiently acknowledging a crowd of awestruck rabble. No, I made up those details. Uh, Stuart waved his hat, and a 12-man team of Marines rushed to the door. After an initial abortive attempt to break down the door with axes, they switched to a battering ram and crashed into the engine house. Lee had instructed the soldiers to rely on bayonets to minimize the risk to hostages, so there was less shooting than what you might have expected. Uh, Brown and his men put up uh, token resistance, but it didn't last long. Uh, about three minutes, and the Marines quickly secured the building. Two of the raiders continued to fire on the Marines, and they were bayoneted for the effort. Uh, Lewis Washington pointed out John Brown and uh, Lieutenant Israel Green, who was commanding the raiding party, uh, attacked Brown with his saber. Now, this is another interesting footnote because when Lieutenant Green had received his orders to join Lee's detachment, you know, the group that was charged with putting down the Harpers Ferry raid, uh, they were all in a hurry to arrive as quickly as possible. And in his rush, Green grabbed his, his dress saber rather than his combat saber. Uh, the difference, of course, is that the dress saber did not have a sharpened edge. It, it was still several feet long and made of steel, but it was not sharp. 
So when uh, Green struck Brown, which sounds like a messed up episode of The Color Crew, the other parents with young kids will get that joke. Brown was busted up pretty good, and he was bleeding heavily, but he was not seriously wounded. Green later reported uh, of his capture of John Brown, and this is a long quote, but it's it's a really good account. Uh, Green reported, quote, Quicker than thought, I brought my saber down with all my strength upon his head. He was moving as the blow fell, and I suppose I did not strike him where I had intended, for he received a deep saber cut in the back of his neck. He fell senseless on his side, then rolled over on his back. He had in his hand a short, sharps cavalry carbine. I think he had just fired as I reached Colonel Washington, for the Marine who had followed me into the aperture made by the latter received a bullet in the abdomen, from which he died in a few minutes. The shot might have been fired by someone else in the insurgent party, but I think it was from Brown. Instinctively, as Brown fell, I gave him a saber thrust in the left breast. The sword I carried was a light uniform weapon, and either not having a point or striking something hard in Brown's accoutrements did not penetrate. The blade bent double. End quote. So had Green grabbed the correct saber, Brown would almost certainly have been killed. Instead, he, he took a pretty good beating, but he wasn't in danger of losing his life. And that's important, too, because a lot of uh, Brown's impact uh, resulted from the way things unfolded afterwards. Now, at this point, the raid is effectively over. Lee and his Marines are in complete control of the situation. The hostages have been freed, and the surviving raiders, including John Brown, have been placed under arrest. Seven raiders were uh, not in Harper's Ferry when uh, Lee's detachment arrived, including Jim Cook, who had uh, got out of town earlier, and Owen Brown, who had stayed at the Maryland farm. Of the seven, five were never captured, and they were able to escape north. All five would fight for the north in the Civil War. Owen Brown and Francis Merriam served as officers, the latter in the 3rd South Carolina Colored Infantry. The other two, uh, the raiders who escaped from Harper's Ferry but did not fight for the Union, uh, John Cook and Albert Hazlett, uh, they were both captured in Pennsylvania in an unsuccessful attempt to reach Canada, and they were both returned to Virginia for hanging. The 11 hostages, who were uh, no doubt overjoyed to have made it through the ordeal alive, uh, they were nonetheless in pretty rough shape. Lieutenant Green described the hostages' state, quote, They were the sorriest lot of people I ever saw. They had been without food for over 60 hours, in constant dread of being shot, and were huddled in a corner where lay the body of Brown's son, end quote. Uh, Brown and four other surviving raiders were whisked away to jail in Charlestown, Virginia, the county seat of Jefferson County where Harper's Ferry is situated. The Commonwealth of Virginia charged Brown with murder, incitement of slave rebellion, and treason against Virginia. Now, if you're wondering how Brown could be uh, charged with treason against Virginia when he was not a citizen or resident of Virginia, you are not alone. That argument would be used as a defense at his trial, and to this day, uh, a lot of legal scholars argue that, technically speaking, he was not guilty of the crime for which he would eventually be hanged. Now, for what it's worth, I actually think that's correct. If individual states were indeed sovereign, as was the prevailing legal opinion in Virginia in 1859, then logically, a citizen of another state 
should not be capable of committing treason against a state uh, to which uh, he owed no allegiance. Of course, the point is strictly academic now because Brown was uh, most certainly guilty of other capital crimes. But at the time, it, it was not a mere formality. Virginia did not want Brown to be tried at the federal level. He had attacked Virginia and Virginians. And the old Dominion, well, she wanted her pound of flesh. And the charge of treason against Virginia helped make sure that jurisdictions stayed at the state level. Within a matter of hours after Brown's capture, Harper's Ferry was filled with the two groups who always seem to appear when the spotlight is on, press and politicians. And it didn't take long for the reporters to realize that John Brown made for good copy. He refused to identify the men who financed the raid or to even admit that they existed, but he wasn't shy about talking about his cause. And he frequently spoke in very eloquent terms. Brown replied to questions about, uh, about other conspirators, quote, uh, No man sent me here. It was my own prompting, or that of my maker, or that of the devil, whichever you are pleased to ascribe it to, end quote. So his lips were sealed about the secret six, but it, it really didn't matter. The inevitable investigation, which was headed up by Jeb Stewart, found extensive correspondence at the Kennedy farm, along with hundreds of weapons and maps with attack plans throughout the South. The investigation identified the Secret Six as Brown's financial backers, and also found letters to and from Senator Henry Wilson and Frederick Douglass. Predictably, there were calls for the arrests of the Secret Six, uh, predominantly but not exclusively from Democrats. As a result, uh, the men started to panic. These were uh, high-profile, high-status, wealthy men, and they had every reason to believe that they would indeed face criminal charges. Uh, Garrett Smith literally went insane as a result of the pressure, and he had to be committed to an asylum. Most of the others fled the country, as did Frederick Douglass, uh, who left for England. It should be noted that Frederick Douglass wasn't implicated in any crimes, but uh, just being an associate of John Brown uh, was dangerous in the weeks following the raid. So five of the Secret Six denied any knowledge of Brown's plan, which was a lie. But only T.W. Higginson, and this is to his credit, I say, acknowledged his role and publicly defended John Brown. Higginson would even flirt with the idea of organizing a jailbreak. But after looking into it, it was pretty clear that Brown was, uh, was going to be too closely guarded uh, to be sprung out of prison uh, without using sufficient force to, to just make matters worse. Now, for his part, Brown didn't, uh, didn't try to deny or hide what he had been up to or why he had been doing it. He, he pronounced that his raid was morally justified under the Golden Rule. Were he held in bondage, deemed the private property of another person, and involuntarily put to labor for no pay, Brown would hope that sympathetic free men would be willing to take drastic action on his behalf. And when you put it in those terms, the raid starts to appear uh, a lot more rational. Now, along with the, uh, the role of martyr-to-be, Brown also assumed the role of profit. The raid on Harper's Ferry, he forecast, was only the beginning of the coming troubles over slavery. Quote, 
You had better, all of you people of the South, prepare yourselves for a settlement of this question. You may dispose of me very easily. I am nearly disposed of now, but this question is still to be settled. This Negro question, I mean. The end of that is not yet. End quote. And there were plenty more uh, prophetic and philosophical words to come. The, the raid and the planned insurrection had been a failure, but Brown intended to make the most of the platform that the national press was, was all too happy to supply him with. And the more Brown was able to state his, his case publicly, the more sympathetic he became. Now, even Southerners begrudgingly acknowledged that there was uh, something impressive about the way that John Brown carried himself, especially considering you know, the ordeal he had just gone through and the trouble he was in. Lewis Washington declared Brown, quote, the coolest and firmest man I ever saw in defying danger and death, end quote. And Virginia Governor Henry Wise admitted of Brown, quote, he is the gamest man I ever saw. He is a man of clear head, of courage, fortitude, and simple ingeniousness. He is a fanatic, vain and garrulous, but truthful and intelligent. Uh, but uh, according to Wise, the Raiders were murderous, traitorous robbers, insurrectionists, wanton, malicious, unprovoked felons, end quote. And future Copperhead and Ohio Governor Clement Vallandigham, who would later be imprisoned by the Lincoln administration for speaking out against the war, uh, Vallandigham concluded of Brown, quote, He is the farthest possible remove from the ordinary ruffian, fanatic, or madman, end quote. In the North, the initial reaction to the raid was probably uh, what you might expect, near universal condemnation. Perhaps the most well-known abolitionist nationally, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, completely disavowed Brown as a representative of abolitionism. He viewed Brown as, quote, misguided, wild, and apparently insane, end quote. Though Garrison recognized the moral conviction behind Brown's action, uh, which he found to be a well-intended effort. Like Garrison, most of the northern newspapers concluded that, well, John Brown must be insane. There, that was the safest and easiest conclusion to reach, after all, because uh, otherwise you might have to more closely examine his motives. Uh, to the Chicago Tribune, Brown was, quote, a man who has for years been as mad as a march hare. And the raid demonstrated, quote, incomprehensible stupidity, unpardonable criminality, end quote. And the New York Tribune dismissed the raid as the work of a madman, which was a nearly identical description to what uh, R.E. Lee would put in his report. And the papers did not miss the connection to Potawatomi, and so the massacre was rehashed extensively and discussed more widely and in greater detail than it had been previously. But even with ghastly descriptions of the Potawatomi massacre uh, again circulating in the national press, Brown's uh, earnestness uh, started to, to win some people over. An October 30th speech by Henry David Thoreau was the turning point. Thoreau defended Brown as a man of moral conviction who was taking desperate action for a righteous cause. To Thoreau, Brown's words proved that he was not an insane traitor. He was a Cromwellian Puritan, taking patriotic action to save his country from its great sin. Thoreau's speech was printed in, in papers throughout the North, and it won over his close friend Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was uh, one of, if not the most admired, uh, American thinker uh, of the time. 
Emerson went so far as to describe Brown as, quote, that new saint whom no one purer or more brave was ever moved by love of men into conflict and death. That new saint awaiting his martyrdom, and who, if he shall suffer, will make the gallows glorious like the cross, end quote. After Thoreau and Emerson voiced their support, it became acceptable to, to speak in favor of Brown in polite company in the North. Now, as the mood in the North began to shift more toward admiration of John Brown, Southerners were left with their mouths hanging wide open. I mean, are you kidding me? This old maniac just violently attacked Virginia and killed innocent people, including a free black man, by the way, and the beloved mayor of a bucolic town. And now you posturing Yankees are going to make a saint out of him? And it didn't help that the reports coming out of Harper's Ferry and circulating in the South were exaggerated. By some accounts, Brown was leading 350 men in a plot nakedly designed to kill Southerners and take over the government of Virginia. He was acting on behalf of the radical Republican politicians who wanted unrest in the South so that they could seize unchecked power in Washington. Now, Brown had no connection to Seward, Lincoln, Fremont, or any other prominent Republican. He frankly had no use for politicians at all. But the true accounts of his networking with well-known abolitionists and fundraising throughout New England uh, seemed to be circumstantial evidence of a much more wide-ranging conspiracy. And Democrats were, were all too happy to fan the flames, too, uh, attempting to link uh, Brown's violent raid to Republicans at every turn. Senator Jefferson Davis announced, quote, We have been invaded, and that invasion and the facts connected with it show Mr. Seward to be a traitor and deserving of the gallows, end quote. And Seward responded uh, to attempts to connect him to the raid by declaring it, quote, an act of sedition and treason by a monomaniac, end quote. And the New York Journal of Commerce painted Brown as a, quote, paid hireling of New England Republicans, end quote. And the, quote, sanguinary scenes at Harper's Ferry were the natural conclusion of radical Republican rhetoric. The Republicans, including Lincoln, denounced Brown's raid without reservation or hesitation. Uh, they emphasized that the party's position was, was not to interfere with slavery in the South. They just, you know, didn't want to spread the economic inefficiencies caused by slavery into any of the new territories. And notwithstanding the denunciations, though, the accusations uh, were largely stuck in the South. So when Lincoln was elected the following year, Southern minds still connected Honest Abe to Wasawatomie Brown. And that was due in no small part to effective Democrat politicking. Back in Virginia, the Commonwealth was eager to guarantee John Brown his right to a speedy trial. Uh, but not due to any devotion to constitutional principles. Uh, they moved things uh, along quickly for two basic reasons. One, they wanted to exact swift retribution and make an example out of old John Brown. And two, uh, the state Pauls were uh, genuinely worried that if Brown wasn't brought to justice quickly, he would be lynched by the people of Jefferson County. And, and while they certainly didn't have any sympathy for John Brown, uh, vigilante justice and lynchings undermined the government's authority and, well, they just generally look bad. So the authorities wanted Brown hanged, uh, but they wanted Virginia to do it, not a lynch mob. At his arraignment, Brown made clear 
that he would not give anyone the satisfaction of asking for mercy. When asked for his plea, he said, quote, I did not ask for any quarter at the time I was taken. I did not ask to have my life spared. If you seek my blood, you can have it at any moment without this mockery of a trial. I do not ask for a trial. Nothing but that which conscience gives or cowardice would drive you to practice. End quote. Uh, you can tell by that point he had definitely decided on martyrdom. You know, if you hang me, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. So two local attorneys were appointed by the court to defend Brown, and a group of Boston abolitionists also hired and sent a young lawyer named George Hoyt to join the defense team. Hoyt was only 21 years old, and he was very inexperienced, but he wasn't there for his legal acumen. His actual task was to scope out the town, jail, and courtroom, and report back uh, as to the prospects for a rescue. A uh, savvy prosecutor, though, sniffed out the scheme, and he reported his suspicions to Governor Wise. But either way, Hoyt reported back to the uh, Boston abolitionists who had hired him that a rescue attempt uh, would be futile. Uh, So he focused his efforts on Brown's defense, and he did uh, actually end up contributing to the unsuccessful effort. The trial itself began on October 26, 1859, and this is less than two weeks after the raid, uh, with 500 observers in attendance and Judge Andrew Parker presiding. Brown was still in rough shape, physically, uh, from the beating he had taken from Lieutenant Green, and was confined to a cot for much of the trial. Defense counsel initially focused on an insanity defense, hoping to avoid a death sentence, and several affidavits attesting to Brown's supposed insanity were submitted to the court by sympathetic abolitionists who who knew Brown and his family from Ohio. The defense probably was not going to be successful anyway, but but Brown, uh, Brown refused to play ball. His whole purpose uh, would have been defeated had he pretended to be insane. So the, the lawyer's theory of the case was that uh, first... Any treason Brown had supposedly committed would have to have been against the federal government, not the Commonwealth of Virginia, because he had, he had attacked federal property. Thus, the state court lacked jurisdiction to bring that charge. And besides, he was not and had never been a citizen of Virginia. And to the charge of inciting slave rebellion, the defense team argued that uh, Brown's intent was to free slaves, not to cause them to rebel against their masters. So his actions were not inherently violent. And finally, they argued that the killings uh, that resulted from the raid were actually defensive. The raiders didn't fire on the townsfolk and, and militia until they had themselves been fired upon. Now, of course, uh, Shepard Hayward, the uh, free black B&O employee who was shot as he attempted to escape from Brown's uh, bridge guards, uh, Hayward would have maybe begged to differ had he survived the raid. Uh, Several of the hostages, who at the end of the trial, Brown commended for their honest testimony, uh, several supported Brown's contention that he had not physically harmed or abused hostages. However, they disputed his claim that he directed the raiders to cease fire when non-combatants were in harm's way. On the third day of the trial, John Brown, who had been uh, more or less stoic to that point, uh, stood up from his cot and unleashed an animated tirade about how the trial was a disgraceful sham and he was being railroaded. And most significantly, he accused his defense team 
of intentional incompetence. Now, in response to this charge, the, the two veteran attorneys who were, had been acting on his behalf uh, sought and received leave to withdraw from the case, which left only the, the rookie uh, George Hoyt in Brown's corner. Hoyt was not prepared to act as lead counsel, so he made uh, the smart play and requested a continuance until the next day, which allowed time for uh, two more out-of-state attorneys who were much more experienced to arrive and join the defense team. Uh, Sam Chilton took over as lead counsel for the remainder of the trial, and he delivered the closing argument, summarizing the defense strategy at trial. Uh, Brown could not be a traitor to Virginia because Brown was not a Virginian. Uh, The deaths that occurred were combat casualties, not murders, and Brown uh, could not have incited a slave revolt because, well, no slave revolt occurred. Uh, The case then went to the jury, and after a 45-minute deliberation, John Brown was found guilty of the charge of treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia. The sentencing hearing came on November 2nd. Uh, John Brown was was permitted to speak on his own behalf, and and he did so, uh, again, very effectively. The Associated Press's account of his speech was reported throughout the country, and he repeated his contention that he had not planned on bloodshed, only liberation, and just things got out of hand. One line in particular uh, really resonated with with Northern audiences. After citing the, the equality of all men before God, as declared in the Declaration of Independence and the Golden Rule, Brown said, quote, Had I so interfered on behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, it would have been all right. Every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. And then Brown went on, quote, I believe that to have interfered as I have done in behalf of his despised poor, I did not wrong, but right. If it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the forbearance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of millions in the slave country whose rights are disregarded by the wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I say, let it be done. End quote. Now, that's uh, pretty eloquent and again suggested his willingness to be a martyr, which northern audiences picked up on, and frankly, ate up. In all fairness, though, we need to point out that Brown's claim to have not anticipated bloodshed is dubious, and there's no doubt that he was was indeed trying to incite a slave revolt. I mean, you don't gather up 400 firearms and 1,000 pikes and then attack an armory to secure even more armaments if you aren't expecting well, at least a little bit of violence, and, and, and you don't think that there's going to be some, well, some hands to put all those weapons in. But either way, Judge Parker sentenced John Brown to die by hanging to be carried out on December 2nd, 1859 in Charlestown, Virginia, now West Virginia. So you're talking about six weeks after the crime, the, the sentence would be carried out. So you have, you have to hand it to them. That is speedy justice, especially compared to the, the years and years inmates spend on death row nowadays. Uh, John Brown, he was resigned to his fate, but his thoughts stayed on his cause. A, a handwritten note found in his cell the day of the execution uh, issued the prophecy that would become famous among historians. Quote, I, John Brown 
am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood, end quote. Now, that's real-life foreshadowing, if ever I have heard it. So around 11 a.m. on December 2nd, John Brown was transported to the gallows in a horse-drawn wagon, sitting atop his coffin. Charlestown was filled with over 1,000 soldiers, uh, assigned to thwart any potential rescue attempt, uh, but the execution itself was closed to the public and to the press. The uniformed men in attendance included an awkward professor from the Virginia Military Institute by the name of Thomas Jackson, leading a team of VMI cadets, and Johnny Depp Paradigm, John Wilkes Booth, who was uh, not actually in the Virginia militia, but had borrowed a uniform from a friend so that he could watch Osawatomie Brown die. Stonewall Jackson and Major John Preston, also a VMI, both left detailed accounts of the execution, which is fortunate since the press was not permitted to observe. Preston reported, quote, The general effect was most imposing, and at the same time, picturesque, end quote. And Jackson, after the romantic, provided his young wife, Mary Anna, with a vivid, comprehensive portrayal of the proceedings. Brown appeared wearing, quote, carpet slippers of predominating red, white socks, black pants, black frock coat, black vest, and black slouch hat. Nothing around his neck besides his shirt collar, end quote. And you got to love Jackson's attention to detail here. You know, if I was... If I was writing a letter to my wife describing a hanging that I had witnessed, I'm pretty sure that I would never have thought uh, to let her know what color socks the condemned was wearing. Uh, Jackson then tells us that upon reaching the gallows, quote, Brown had his arms tied around him and ascended the scaffold with apparent cheerfulness. After reaching the top of the platform, he shook hands with several who were standing around him. The sheriff placed the rope around his neck then threw a white cap over his head and asked him if he wished a signal when all should be ready, to which he replied that it made no difference, provided he was not kept waiting too long, end quote. And as the hour approached, according to Preston, quote, his manner was without trepidation, but his countenance was not free from concern, and it seemed to me to have a little cast of wildness. He stood upon the scaffold but a short time, giving brief adieus to those about him. When he was properly pinioned, the white cap drawn over his face, the noose adjusted and attached to the hook above, and he was moved blindfolded a few steps forward, end quote. And finally, the execution order came. From Jackson's account to uh, Anna, and, and as an aside, the fact that Jackson would, uh, again, be this precise in a letter to his wife um, not, not an official report or anything like that. Uh, it really gives you a window into just the oddness of his character. Uh, Jackson wrote, quote, Brown fell through about 25 inches so as to bring his knees on a level with the position occupied by his feet before the rope was cut. With the fall, his arms below the elbow flew up, hands clenched, and his arms gradually fell by spasmodic motions. There was very little motion of his person for several minutes after which the wind blew his lifeless body to and fro, end quote. And then silence, until Major Preston called out, quote, So perish all such enemies of Virginia, all such enemies of the Union, all such enemies of the human race, end quote. 
Uh, Governor Wise ordered John Brown's body returned to his family in New York uh, for burial at North Elba. And uh, this was actually uh, something of a kindness to the family. The majority opinion was that Brown's body should be used for medical research, as with his son's. Uh, which was at that point in time considered a, uh, a post-mortem indignity. But Wise decided that the family should have the body. Uh, the coffin traveled by train through Philadelphia, and at each stop, large crowds gathered, both in support of Brown uh, and, and also denouncing him. He was buried under a tombstone that had been commissioned for his Revolutionary War veteran grandfather, which uh, bore an inscription, per his direction, eulogizing both John Brown himself and his two sons who had died in Harper's Ferry. So with the trial over and the sentence carried out, the mood in the North continued to shift in Brown's favor. There was still a large portion of the population who thought uh, that Brown and his raid were reprehensible. Uh, These are the likes of uh, folks like um, William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, who thought the South should be left to its own political devices but who would, in one year, be willing to fight to the death to preserve the Union. But Brown's supporters comprised the, the more vocal minority, and that's what the Southern press reported on. Church bells rang in his honor throughout the North, glowing eulogies appeared in Northern papers, and New England intellectuals sang his praises in speech after speech, comparing his sacrifice to Jesus Christ himself. H.D. Thoreau left no doubt that Brown had, in fact, achieved martyrdom. Quote, He is more alive than he ever was. He has earned immortality. He is no longer working in secret. He works in public and in the clearest light that shines on this land. End quote. Uh, Brigadier General Clement Evans, writing after the war, noted the effect that the North's post-mortem embrace of Brown had on the South. Evans writes, quote, Had the event been treated as the act of a fanatic, whose madness no more exempted him from death than the fanaticism of Booth could shield him from an assassin's fate, there would have been no serious fears felt in the South. Insurrections, very few in number, had been attempted and failed before. The alarm in the South was certainly real, because it was based on the declared doctrines of the anti-slavery sectionalists, who were apparently growing in power and increasing in aggression. And Southerners, uh, Evans says, quote, justly charged that the insurrection was the legitimate result of continued and recent fierce anti-slavery agitation. If the raid of Brown had occurred in 1851, it would have provoked no political disturbances, for there was then no mighty political organization confronting the South and no counter-organization forming in the South to meet the North, end quote. And then shortly thereafter, in the 1860 Republican Convention, more than half of the items on the party platform dealt with slavery. And the non-slavery portion of the platform included a high protective tariff viewed in the South as an intentional effort to support northern industrialists at the expense of of the southern agricultural economy. Uh, Writing two decades after the war, a southern historian declared, quote, It is impossible to regard the proceedings of the Chicago Convention in any other light than as equivalent to a proclamation of absolute hostile purposes against the southern section of this country. They were not technically a declaration of war to be conducted by arms, simply because they proposed only to use 
the pacific force of superior numbers in order to deprive the minority of its rights under the Constitution. End quote. Uh, so talk of civil war grew louder and was not entirely unwelcome. Michigan Senator Ben Chandler, later of the Joint Committee on the uh, Conduct of the War, held that, quote, without a little bloodletting, this union will not, in my opinion, be worth a curse, end quote. And Southerner Robert Hunter asked, could the minority rely upon the Constitution to protect any of their rights if it suited the passions or the interests of the majority to invade them? Our government was fast being revolutionized and becoming only a despotic majority of numbers. The limitations of a written constitution fast proving themselves to be without the defense of the political power to enforce them, end quote. Now, keep in mind, actual abolitionists were still a small minority in the North, but uh, partially because of Brown's raid, Southerners uh, imagined an, a Northern majority set on subjugating the South. And, and then at the, the Democratic Convention... The party ruptured over the slavery question, with, with Southern delegates demanding overt protections of slavery in the party platform, all but guaranteeing that Abraham Lincoln would be elected, despite being irrationally hated and mistrusted in the South, uh, due in part to Stephen Douglas's having uh, effectively linked him to abolitionists like John Brown. A 19th century British historian described the deep polarization that gripped the young republic in the days after John Brown's raid, quote, The storm of anti-slavery demonstration, the tempest of invective, denunciation, and menace which swept the North, the counterblast of indignation and resentment provoked in the South, terrified politicians who had inherited from Clay, Calhoun, and Webster the traditions of a mightier generation and the task of saving the Union. Now, for the first time, their object was called in question— that the Union was worth saving was openly denied by thousands. That it could be saved was inwardly doubted by millions. End quote. Influential Northern journalist Horace Greeley declared, quote, We have repeatedly said, and we once more insist, that the great principle embodied by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, is sound and just. And that if the slave states, the cotton states, or the Gulf states only choose to form an independent nation, they have a moral right to do so. End quote. And so the South decided to do just that. According to Hunter, the South's choice was between oppression and war. Secession was declared and war came. And in the South, what was initially dubbed Mr. Lincoln's War was also characterized as a, quote, stupendous John Brown raid on Dixie, end quote. And a Mobile, Alabama paper concluded, quote, no man can support such a war without being a disciple and follower of that old thief and assassin of Osawatomie, end quote. Lincoln called for volunteers, and they came. And when they marched, they marched to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. But everyone knew, North and South, that they were marching to the beat of John Brown's body.
And that's going to do it for our look at John Brown. Hope you all enjoyed this streamlined episode and our foray into politics. Next time, we'll be getting back into the war itself uh, when we start our look at William Tecumseh Sherman. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big-